It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. As promised today, we're going to be looking in detail at what the Bank of England decided, but also what it means for politicians as we look towards 2024. First of all, the headlines in the Bank of England. Lizzie, you are here to judge me on this because this is main part of your job and I feel like you do a much better job than me, but here we go. Uh, so rates stayed unchanged at a 15-year high. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, says there's, quote, still some way to go in the fight to control inflation. So no rate cuts on the horizons, despite what the markets think, by the way. And the new Bank of England economic forecast actually gloomier than it was before. Bank of England now expects growth to be flat in the fourth quarter of 2023. Did I miss anything? Well, I think we could talk about what it means for politics, because if you are sitting in Westminster, you would probably be pretty disappointed that the rate cuts aren't going to come until way later next year, or to be told that they're not even being discussed yet at the Bank of England. And for growth to be gloomier, this isn't great news for Rishi Sunak, given that it was one of his top five priorities at the start of the year for that to be, uh, for the economy to be growing. But, but... If rate cuts do magically fall in, let's say, the middle of next year, is that not a good sign for voters going to the polls, let's say, for example, in the autumn? Well, it might change when Rishi Sunak wants to call the general election uh, to not have so many people remortgaging on these higher rates. But I am told that this is not factoring in and that we really shouldn't be thinking about a spring election anyway. Mm-hmm. The really interesting thing is to put this in a bit of global context. Uh, in case anybody's missed it, there's been what they've been dubbing a pivot party. Uh, the Federal Reserve signalling that it is going to cut rates at some point next year. Markets have really taken off uh, this uh, this week. Uh, the Bank of England, though, and the ECB both really pushing back on when rate cuts are going to happen. Uh, interesting uh, in the readout written by our friend uh, Julian Harris, uh, the newsletter there saying that uh, uh, Christine Lagarde and Andrew Bailey are standing grumpily in the corner, refusing to drink the punch. Stop looking at me when you say that. <laughs> well, Jay Powell brought everyone around, and then they said it was a. 
Yes, it was Shut a big round. Not for me, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay, joining us to shed some light and potentially some um, also analysis of what happened <laughs> yesterday. Some analysis. A policy announcement is our senior economic supporter, Philip Aldrich. Phil, great to have you uh, in with us. So, how, what did you make then of the Bank of England decision yesterday? Is this the thing that we have to not think about rates coming down yet, or it, can we start to get excited about this happening? I don't think we can start thinking about rate cuts imminently. I mean, the bank is pretty um, clear. All the messaging has been it's too it's too early to to start thinking about rate cuts. Um, three members of the nine strong committee voted for rate right a rate hike, so they want interest rates to be five and a half percent. So it, it you know the signalling is very much um, the other side of the equation, which is you know we haven't got on top of inflation yet, so. You know, market boys and girls just you know hold your horses. <laughs> and we also had some new economic data today showing that consumer confidence is rebounding. Are we meant to take away that the public is just blissfully unaware of an impending recession? Well, the business activity, the PMIs, is also quite positive. So, um, I mean, is there going to be a recession? That's that's the, that's the question. I mean, the the Bank of England uh, is is not forecasting a recession. The OBR is not forecasting a recession. Stagnation, recession, it's tomato, sta- yeah. tomato. I mean, it's basically zero growth, right? Mm. Um, uh, uh, so I think the, the the question for households is everything's everything's relative, right? You, you, if you had a really difficult year the year before and now you've, you know, so you had your personal income effectively falling and next year you're going to have a little bit of an increase uh, it, over as inflation comes down and your pay pay rises are coming is coming through and the energy your energy bills are falling etc the um you know the, there'll be this you you'll feel a little bit more confident and this this is probably that you know reflecting that we've come from a pretty dismal place to a slightly less dismal place and that is a big improvement although i mean it's no one's jumping for joy but yeah, as you, coming through. As you mentioned, the, the PMIs just out in the last couple of hours were really quite decent, weren't they? And certainly a lot better than France's and Germany's we had this morning, which were really quite poor, weren't they? Well, everyone's in contraction. It's not like it's not like one one except for well, the the services reading in the UK. Um, yeah, and the and the and the broader picture, the composite was was was, was positive in growth as well. Just looking at the the, the autumn statement and the impact that's had on uh, the Bank of England. What, what, what do you make of the BOE's? Uh, projections on what the autumn statement is going to do to to the public finances and the economy. So, I mean, they're, they're saying that uh, the bank said that they, they would increase their growth forecast slightly, um, uh, but they also said it's not actually going to have any impact on inflation. So, it's better for growth, but it doesn't change the inflation outlook. How does uh, that work? Just uh, this is a yeah. really one hundred and one. But how do you not boost inflation with your tax cuts and yet manage to grow the economy? Well, it's 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 so you have to think of the economy as 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 having two sides, and if one side accelerates, so if demand accelerates faster than supply, you have an inflationary impulse. If supply rises and demand rises in tandem, the impact on prices doesn't change so um, uh, because they've basically got the same balance net balance uh, that's how they explain it but um, it's good for the public finances although to be to be honest it doesn't really matter what the Bank of England thinks on this stuff because it's the OBR that will determine what it means for you know for whether Hunt has an extra 10 billion or whatever to to, for tax cuts Um, and um, and the OBR's forecast was already a little bit more 
optimistic than the Bank of England. So the Bank of England is moving more in line. And the OBR did incorporate all of these tax, you know, the the, the, the autumn statement changes into its forecast. So mm. uh, I, I, it's the good news here, actually, is that the market has been adjusting as a result of what's happening in America, as you were talking about with Jay Powell basically signaling that there could be discussion of rate cuts, etc. So global markets have been shifting now and effectively bringing down long-term borrowing costs. And that's happening in the UK as well. Um, and that is probably going to give Hunt some headroom. But that's not anything to do with what the bank is doing. That's just these global forces. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about that, actually. Do you think, looking into 2024, if the Fed does start cutting rates sort of fairly early in the year, other central banks in Europe, the UK and, and the ECB, are they going to be able to, to hold the line and stick to this, oh, no, we're not cutting rates thing, or are they going to get pushed into following the Fed? Markets just listen to Jay Powell. They don't even care what Andrew Bailey's saying, it seems. Yeah, well, the, the power of the you know, the dollar is enormous. Um, and so, yeah, markets here are basically being driven by what's happening in America to a large degree. And you and the bank cannot push back against that beyond, you know, at, you know ramping of interest rates up to such a degree it's it's unnecessary. Um, the, uh, <coughs> yeah, the, the, the sort of... Um, uh, whether whether the UK and the ECB can hold the line and and say we're gonna we're not gonna cut rates if the Fed is cutting rates, it's it, you know in theory we do have an inflation problem here still. We have underlying services inflation which is at six point six percent. We have we have uh, wages growing at over seven percent. So we do have domestic inflationary problems for which the Bank of England. This is why they were why they aren't saying we're talking about cutting rates. But if next year the Fed starts cutting rates. Um, you know, you're going to get loads of politicians coming out telling the bank that why isn't it why isn't it following course and cutting rates? And there's going to, and the last thing the bank is then going to want to do is find itself you know looking like it's responding to Jacob Rees-Mogg saying we need to cut rates. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I imagine they'll want to kind of get ahead of the game and and they'll uh, uh, rather than than look like they're having to respond to political pressure. But Similarly the, with Donald Trump and Jay Powell. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a really interesting question because it sort of speaks to the the difficult position that central banks find themselves in because the. Ultimately, for voters or, for example, people who have mortgages, they're still going to be paying higher interest rates. And until rates start to come down, they're still going to be people going to be paying out more money on their mortgages every month. And is that what's going to affect that conversation you were talking about earlier about who feels better off and how short is your memory versus do you remember how well off you felt two years ago versus how well you felt off a year ago versus how well off you're going to feel when you go to vote at some point mm. next year, as we expect it to be? How difficult does it become for the central bank to be able to operate above all of that and and, and not even be seen to be bowing to pressure from politicians who, of course, will want some good news going into an election? Yeah, I guess it does get tricky, doesn't it? Because if the bank starts cutting rates just ahead of an election, it's you know the, it, people are going to start crying, you know, foul. Mm. Like what what's going on here? Um, uh, so I, I guess there there is a sort of um, coordination risk uh, for the perception of bank independence. Um, uh, you know, I I mean, so far that you know the bank's rate rises and and the policy that they're taking on quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, is is actually giving uh, Jeremy Hunt a massive headache. Um, so you you would definitely say that 
they are really separating themselves from the fiscal side of the economy. And, and if that means that it's creating a problem for the Chancellor, they don't seem to care. And in, in that respect, you know, you would say that, this, that at the moment that, that, was, that would suggest that they will continue to toe that line. Of course, when you know, you're in the teeth of an election, um, uh, they, don't, they don't want to end up becoming this kind of political creature because just by, just by the simple fact that their policy is having this enormous, you know, interest rates are both redistributive and um, any interest rate decision is redistributive. So, you know, people who have, so cuts are mm-hmm. bad for the wealthy, uh, uh, tax rises, um, rate rises are good for the wealthy and bad for people who are borrowing. Um, so you can't avoid that there is some politics mixed up in what is supposed to be an apolitical Bank of England. And that's why we're talking about the Bank of England on the UK Politics Podcast. (laughs) Phil Aldrich, our senior economics reporter, thanks for being with us in the studio. Well, let's get another view now on that Bank of England rate decision. Tony Yates is a former senior advisor at the Central Bank, and he's been writing in the FT about the reports by the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee on the bank's independence. We spoke to him earlier about this, but we started by asking him what he made of the vote split in yesterday's rate decision. I was kind of surprised that um, three members in the UK actually wanted to raise rates. So... Uh, how to make sense of that? Well, I mean, all all of the central banks that moved are focused on what they think of what they're thinking of as domestically generated inflation measures like services or even uh, even just wages. But the signals in all economies are relatively similar, and yet the decisions are pretty different. So, I you know I thought that the UK's response was, you know, relatively hawkish, perhaps reflecting the bank's fairly miserable outlook for for potential output. If you can contrast that with what Powell was reflecting on, he was talking about the help that, that um, the uh, US had got from um, the part, what he described as a participation shock, a kind of re- reversal of the fall in participation you know, preceding and during the pandemic. But we haven't got that in the UK. Does this reflect on the BOE's credibility that markets are evidently listening more to Jerome Powell than to Andrew Bailey? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, they, you know, there's enough. There are enough differences in the circumstances in the in the individual economies. I think to justify taking individual individual decisions. You know, the Fed is not. You know, there is not a global currency area. Um, they're not presiding over identical sets of news. Um, you know, I think it will it, it will actually be good. It will force them to explain themselves a bit more closely. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how they deal with that in the next two or three months. I mean, you've been writing about this report by the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee, which, of course, the former Bank of England Governor Mervyn King chairs. It warned that when public confidence in the Bank of England is so low, independence could be at risk. I wonder if you think that's going too far when, given that expectation management is the Bank of England's job and confidence is crucial to that, maybe the Lords are right. I I mean, the... um... The major risk that the Lords were reflecting on, which I think they were, it was right for them to do that, is you know the fact that inflation went up to 11.1, which is extraordinary, uh, you know, given that the target is two. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think you know really uh, that was a reflection of the extraordinary circumstances that you know we found ourselves in. We had Brexit, the um, the throttling of supply chains by. Um, uh, the post-pandemic period, and then we had the massive increases in uh, food and energy costs caused by the war in Ukraine. So these are three colossal 
supply shocks and it was probably although they didn't the bank i don't think planned it it was probably roughly the right thing to do so you know i think it's it is definitely going too far to think that um independence is threatened uh it's it's right always to worry about it um but you know i think the bank has come out of it um you know reasonably well given how uh, what the difficult circumstances it faced so this issue now about you know exactly when it should cut i think is um or even in indeed if it even if it will cut in the next few months is you know is concerning because we we don't want the bank to overdo it we don't want uh, an inflation target undershoot but really the bigger picture is we've survived a massive surge in inflation and it, and it's coming down and that's you know, cause for celebrations. If I was gov- if I was the governor, that that's the kind of thing I'll be focusing on. I think is to step step back a bit and not worry about exactly um, the fine detail of the trajectory back to uh, to lower rates, but to think about the fact that we've just survived this enormous surge in inflation and, and it is coming back to target. But are politicians doing enough to reflect that? I mean, there is criticism of the, the BOE in this House of Lords Economic Committee's report. We've had a variety of commentary out of the politicians in the government over the past year and a half or so about the Bank of England. Given that it's a very difficult task, as you outlined, are politicians making the Bank of England's job more difficult? I think they are. I mean, we had um, a summer when the uh, Tories were trying to sort out uh, who was going to be their leader, and there were there were rumbles from the trust camp that you know the bank had um, fallen asleep at the wheel and you know needed sorting out. Um, and then when when it was eventually resolved uh, after the trust Quarteng budget and Sunak took over, you know it, it was very unhelpful of him to list. It, uh, halving inflation as one of his five pledges because that just injects confusion about whose whose job it is to um, pull inflation down and who who's actually responsible so i think that was really unhelpful well that was the former bank of england senior advisor tony Yates speaking to us a little bit earlier uh, lizzie i wonder how what you thought of that idea of this you know getting in on the bank of england's credibility by politicians having many opinions on them well, I think central bankers sometimes act like politicians. You have them telling you how much you should ask for in your pay rise and uh, telling firms how much they should take in profit. I think these roles often blur the lines. Yeah, I thought Phil made a really interesting point is that changing interest rates is, is actually a, a, quite a politically charged thing. And if you put up interest rates rapidly, as they have done over the past couple of years that's very useful for people who have a lot of saving particularly mm. older people older voters and it's bad for those with lots of debts generally people sort of middle-aged people with mortgages so it is a very political business although they might even like if that's not the yeah, that's not the goal of course no indeed yeah Right, OK, let's turn next to a Bloomberg scoop. The government considering a crackdown on social media access for children under 16, including potential bans. Our tech reporter Tom Steele was part of the team that broke that story. He's with us now. Tom, what exactly is the government thinking about here? Hi, it's really early stages and um, we were told they are going to um, hopefully launch a consultation uh, in the new year to explore... They, they, they think there's not enough research on this um, topic, uh, the potential harms, the excessiveness of it. Um, so it'll be informed by that. But, um, you know, you have a sort of question in mind when you launch a consultation like that. 
Tom, this sounds like telling everyone you're going to stop the boats. Is it actually realistic <laughs> to tell teenagers they can't go on social media or is it just flag flying aimed at winning votes from frustrated parents? Yeah, stop the phones. I think <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit of both. Um, it's not completely without um, some backing. They, they passed the Online Safety Act this year, uh, just um, a couple of months ago, which is um, quite a groundbreaking piece of legislation. And so... On the one hand, this does set the direction of travel which Labour can choose to pick up or, you know, discard, given the where the polls are going. That's that's really, you know, how it might pan out, because this government doesn't have enough time to sort of move this sort of thing into legislation. That said, I think it will be very popular with a certain segment of the population, with parents. You know, I think uh, a lot of people think that their kids are addicted to their phones, and it's not necessarily a good thing. Mm, slightly feels like the government's trying to do something which every parent in the country has been attempting to do over the past few years and uh, failing. Um, th- this is going to involve big tech companies, isn't it? Some of the biggest companies uh, in the world. Uh, how, is the, has the UK got any chance of, of getting its way in this? I think when it comes to potential bans, then it gets a bit more extreme. But there are things that you could see um, companies doing. I think parental controls could be beefed up, you know, theoretically. Um, I think TikTok has a parental pairing option where you can kind of see what your kid is looking at and sort of restrict it. Um, so so I, could, I could theoretically see something like that being, being more widely adopted. Has any other country actually managed to do something similar? <laughs> well, I've not done the global survey, but the only one that comes to mind is China, uh, which gives children, um, has given children sort of daily screen time limits on their version of TikTok. Um, so that comparison was drawn when our story broke yesterday, but uh, probably not one that Rishi Sunak was, was hoping for. And this comes as the National Crime Agencies issued a warning to parents about social media. Just break down what they said for us, Tom. Yeah, this is part of a um, something that the UK government has been saying quite widely, which is there is uh, a risk that is not necessarily being managed about encrypted messaging, um, and it lets bad people do bad things and, and keep them hidden. And um, Meta is rolling out encryption more widely across its services. Uh, WhatsApps are encrypted. I believe now they're rolling it out to Facebook Messenger, the other you know, main messaging service they run. Um, home secretaries for several years now have been saying that this is uh, dangerous. And the Online Safety Act sets out kind of preliminary question about companies having to do something about this. Uh, and if, if Ofcom, the regulator, is not... Uh, you know, down the road, so this is not imminent, but if it's not satisfied that companies are doing enough, then it could act, it could ask them to, you know, implement new technology, technology which no one necessarily knows what that would be, um, by the way. Uh, Tom, has this rather come out of the blue? Because the Online Safety Act was debated endlessly, wasn't it? It was a piece of legislation which took a long time to go through Parliament, and now we seem to be kind of adding extra bits to it. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I think The way that uh, one of my sources put it to me was that, well, the Online Safety Act uh, took six years from sort of conception uh, all the way through to uh, becoming legislation recently. And it evolved and it had lots of amendments and it grew. And um, by the time that it got to the end, things have already moved on again. And so you kind of have to keep on addressing this issue and um, sort of on moving it forward. Tom, it, it seems like a fairly lofty goal, as and you've talked us through some of the ideas of how it's early consultations, but it, it does make you wonder how much 
are, are perhaps the government being a bit too ambitious about their potential influence over tech companies and indeed over teenagers? Well, they now do have the Online Safety Act as a as a wedge in to kind of ask companies to do things to keep children safe. And that was always the original goal of the Online Safety Act, by the way. It was really aimed at protecting children online. And their slogan is, make the UK the safest place in the world to be online. So uh, it's all kind of new, and it does seem unrealistic, doesn't it, when we think about how much sway tech companies have these days. Um, so that's why it's such a fascinating story. I'm afraid I can't tell you uh, which way it's going to pan out. <laughs> Tom, I say they should send all the naughty teenagers to Rwanda. Thanks for bringing us that story. That's our tech reporter, Thomas Seal, who broke the story. Great to have you on, Tom. Well, let's think ahead about some of the stories in the political world as well. You've been very distracted by central banks and by the uh, economic situation, uh, but perhaps a more immediate challenge facing the government Another by-election, which, as we know, Ewan, is your favourite topic of conversation. Another possible by-election. Tory MP Scott Benton faces being suspended from Parliament for 35 days over a very serious breach of standard rules. Those are the uh, words used in the report. It was by Parliament's Standards Committee. Uh, and they said he'd given the message that he was, quote, corrupt and for sale. Uh, pretty strong words. In a newspaper sting, reporters posing as gambling industry investors uh, he offered to lobby ministers and table parliamentary questions. Writing to the committee, Scott Benton said that I do not consider my actions to be a breach. He says he complied with the letter and the spirit of the rules. Now, the sanctions still need to be voted on by MPs. And then if passed, there would need to be a recall petition among voters. And remember that 10% is the threshold uh, for a by-election to be called. But we've seen that being met uh, many times in, in the past. So, what's going to happen? Don't keep us in suspense. Well... Blackpool South is pretty marginal. It's certainly a much easier target for Labour than the likes of uh, Tamworth or Selby. It's the less posh end of Blackpool. I think I can possibly say that. Steve's giving me a very dirty look. You always call me a snob. (laughs) I didn't say it wasn't nice. I just said it was the less posh (laughs) end of Blackpool. More affordable. Yes, more affordable. Yes, indeed. And and it's a seat that the Tories took from Labour at the last election. It was one of those 2019 wins with a majority of less than 4,000. So I think probably fairly you could describe it as a seat uh, in the red wall. But it's not one of those seats which the Tories have never held before. But it has mostly been held by Labour uh, over the last couple of decades. To get it back from the Tories, Keir Starmer would need a swing of 5.5%. So that is not a big swing. Put it in a bit of context Labour managed a 21% swing in mid-bed, so that was pretty stonking. 24% in Tamworth. So, yeah, a 5.5% swing. Uh, Keir Starmer, I think, will be uh, looking this one over with a little bit of relish. Indeed. Well, plenty to look forward to if we do get that by-election after all of those procedural hurdles uh, have been surmounted as well. Plenty to look forward to in the next week. It might be wrapping towards Christmas for most people, um, but actually we've still got a couple of days of parliamentary business to be had. Um, Although, of course, we don't have another Prime Minister's questions next week because Tuesday will be the last day for Parliament uh, before recess as well. And lots to watch out for in terms of the economic data, if such things are of interest to you as well. We've got uh, the latest inflation figures out next week. Who will who will that give cause for celebration or commiseration to? And don't forget that Rishi Sunak is going to be jetting off to Italy for talks about the illegal immigration headache. He's going to meet his uh, opposite number there, Georgia Maloney. Uh, and I think Elon Musk is due to speak at that festival at as well. Event, so yeah. plenty to discuss with his old buddy, 
Elon, of course, was the headline act at the AI Summit. Indeed. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and James Wilcock. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.